British General Cornwallis saw nothing but victory ahead of him. He was chasing the retreating American army. American General Nathaniel Greene's army had been divided because of the fighting taking place in the Carolinas. And he recognized that his only hope was a strategic retreat back to Virginia to resupply, to, to reinforce. And so Greene had to leave behind some men as a diversionary force, a, a small group of men that would be between his main army and the approaching British army. It was the only hope that they would be able to, in some way, slow the advance of this overwhelming force. At times, Greene's army had to travel 30 miles a day. The retreat became known as the race to the Dan, the race to the Dan River, their only hope of crossing before the, the British got them and they found safety in Virginia. The Continental Army won the race. Their strategic retreat was, so, was successful, so successful that, that we as Americans... We remember Cornwallis not for his victories in the war. We remember General Cornwallis as the, the British commander who just months later would have to sign a treaty in defeat. At times, the only option is a strategic retreat. And notice in the ministry of Jesus, that's what's taking place here in the Gospel of Mark. I read for you verse 6, that after Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath, the, the religious leaders understand what Jesus is saying when he claims to be Lord of the Sabbath, when he claims to have a greater authority than they have, when he claims to be the one with the, the power to heal, and we've seen already in the gospel of the power to forgive sins, they understand what he's claiming. He is claiming to be God himself. And so the religious leaders decide that this kind of blasphemy to claim to be God. It would be blasphemy were it not true. This kind of claim is a, cl is a threat that can't be allowed to stand, and so the Pharisees begin to plot with the Herodians. Now, that's an unlikely alliance. The, the purebred religious leaders who want to keep the law, the Pharisees, are going to plot together with the Herodians they're the ones who have basically sold out for political gain, for, for, for power. And yet they recognize that the Pharisees recognize they don't have enough power on their own. They're going to need allies in this war against this popular preacher. And so here what we see in, in, in our scripture reading is the, the tension that Mark is setting for us. Between Jesus' growing popularity, the crowds are pressing against him, and the growing threat to his life. That's the tension that Mark is holding before us. And so in this plot of verse 6, we read at the beginning of verse 7, Jesus withdrew. Jesus strategically retreated. Instead of right now confronting the religious leaders and, and pushing forward the claim that, yes, it is true, I am the Son of God, I am the Lord Almighty, I am here, because Jesus knows what that will mean. Mark's gospel will take us there to the cross. And yet now is not yet the time because Jesus is still teaching his disciples. He's still preparing them for ministry. He's still proclaiming the meaning of his death to those that will follow him. And so Jesus' strategic mission, Jesus' strategic withdrawal is to allow his mission to continue. His mission continues first to the crowds 
Then we see it to the apostles, and then I want to apply it finally to us. Look at Jesus' mission with me to the crowds. In verse 7, we're told that Jesus withdrew his disciples to the lake. We're back to the Sea of Galilee. And a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea. I mean, notice how Jesus' ministry to the crowds will now expand. Previously in the, in the chapters here, Jesus, yes, was down at, the, at his baptism further south, but most of his ministry has been contained here in Galilee. So it's this one region in northern Israel where his ministry has been contained. And so that's verse 7. But because of this strategic withdrawal, we actually see that Jesus' influence will expand. L- listen to all of the regions that are now from which people are coming to Jesus. From Judea, which contains the, the major city of Jerusalem, that's to the south, the, the major area where, where the Jews are, are concentrated. And then even further south, Idumea, the region of, of Edom from the Old Testament, farther south, the, the Negev today. And then the regions across the Jordan. So not only are they coming from the south, they're coming from the east. From across the Jordan, they're coming to Jesus. They're also coming from the, the very secular regions of Tyre and Sidon to the north. But you see, the retreat of Jesus doesn't defeat his ministry. It actually extends his ministry because now, rather than just ministering to those in Galilee, there are people coming from the south and from the east and from the north, people coming from everywhere to Jesus. And Jesus recognizes the danger of of the crowds pressing against him, so he tells his disciples, you need to have a, a boat ready. We need a movable pulpit because this could quickly get out of control. And so, have a small boat ready, We can push out just a little bit into the lake. It'll keep the crowds at bay, and I can still continue in my ministry. Because notice what's happening. Jesus continues his ministry of of teaching the crowds. Jesus continues, in verse 10, his ministry of, of healing people from their diseases. Jesus continues his confrontation with the evil spirits, casting them out. See, Jesus' strategic retreat from the plot of the of the Herodians and the, the Pharisees doesn't slow Jesus' ministry down at all. Mark is making clear Jesus is doing everything he was doing before, and perhaps even more effectively because it now reaches more people and the crowds are so great that people are, are pressing to the front just to touch Jesus. Now, Mark will tell us in a couple of chapters, in chapter 5, what happens when somebody with faith comes to Jesus and merely touches him. Jesus can heal by a mere touch. When in the, the press of the crowd, he turns to a woman and says, he turns to the crowd and says, who touched me? And a woman comes forward and says, I did. And he says, your faith has made you well. Jesus is meeting the, the expectations of the crowds. The, the crowds are gathering to come for healing. And yet, Mark is, is continually pressing us to see that it's, it's more than just the popular expectations that Jesus will meet. I mean, we, we have popular expectations that we bring to Jesus today as a culture. Jesus is a, is a good moral teacher. Jesus is a, a wise sage. Jesus has, has great things to teach us, like turn the other cheek, love your, love your enemies, and love your neighbor as yourself. We're, we're comfortable with Jesus as a, as a religious teacher, as long as Jesus kind of keeps his distance. Or some of us, we, we want Jesus as a, as a miracle worker, like the crowds do, pressing just to touch him. But we want Jesus to, to meet our demands on our timeline. We come to Jesus with with our own expectations. Others of us 
come with the, the, having heard the false teaching in our culture that, that what Jesus wants for you is just your, your temporal happiness right now. He wants your best life now. Those are the kinds of cultural expectations we come to Jesus with. But, but Mark, while, while acknowledging that Jesus has power unimaginable, so that merely to get close enough to touch him can bring about radical change, the healing of Jesus, the, the exorcism, pointing us forward to the kingdom of Jesus, which is coming. Mark wants us to always see that, that Jesus is even more than that. Because when the, the demons are cast out, when evil spirits meet Jesus, they cry out, you are the Son of God. They're beginning to, even the demons see the truth, and it's, it's here, not yet in the, the lips of the disciples, but, but again on the lips of the demons that we have the declaration of who Jesus is. And so Jesus' strategic withdrawal doesn't slow down his mission to the crowds. We also see that it gives him opportunity in verse 13 to minister to the apostles, but more than that, we'll see that his ministry is meant to go through the apostles. Verse 13 tells us that Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. We see this is of Jesus' initiative. Yes, the crowds are pressing against Jesus, but the call of discipleship is a call that comes from Christ on his terms. He is the master. And so Jesus calls to him those he wanted, and they came to him. And then we're told that Jesus appointed 12, designating them apostles. Now, you, you, you may note, in, if your Bible has a footnote like mine does, that, that that phrase, designating them apostles, might not be original here to the, the Gospel of Mark. But it's elsewhere in, in all of the other Gospels, this, this description of these 12 as apostles. And so the, the parallels with the other Gospels makes clear that when, when Mark talks about the 12, that's the, the title he gives them through the Gospel. The 12 are set aside for this special purpose. They are the foundation of the church's ministry. And what is the, what is the role of an apostle, these 12, that are called by Jesus? Well, we read it, look with me in verse 14. This is what it means to be an apostle. They're called that they might be with Jesus that they, and that he might send them out to preach and that, verse 15, they might have authority to drive out demons. All right, this is, Mark is giving it to us in very clear terms. What does it mean to be one of the 12? What does it mean to be an apostle? It means you are with Jesus, and that's why Jesus, in this withdrawal, is waiting. If his death comes now, then his apostles won't be trained. He needs them to be with him during his earthly ministry so that upon his, his death and resurrection, he can send them to preach the gospel and send them with his own authority to continue his ministry so that the miracles of the apostles in the early church, and we, we read about this in the book of Acts, we hear it in the, the New Testament letters, the miracles of the apostles will, will authenticate their ministry. It will show that they come, the message they bring comes with the authority of Jesus. How do we know that? Because they're doing the miracles of Jesus. The things that Jesus did, casting out demons, is what we see the apostles do. The, the, the miracles that Jesus does of, of healing those that are, that are sick, that are that are paralyzed, are the miracles we see the apostles do. And so what does it mean to be an apostle? 
For us, it means we look back at these 12. We look back in history and we see that they are the foundation. With the Old Testament prophets, they are the foundation of the church. And what does it mean? It means they were with Jesus. They learned from him. They were witnesses of all the events of Jesus' life. They were with him while he taught. They saw the crowds press against him. They heard the threats, and they were there when he was crucified. But more than that, they saw this Jesus raised from the dead. I mean, see, sometimes we think that, that, that what's happened here with the story of Jesus is that, that maybe, it's, maybe it's just a fable. Maybe it's just a legend. Maybe it's something that the, the apostles themselves invented. That they invented this story after Jesus' death when they're in the, the, the pit of despair and they, they feel like, is there any hope left? And they think to themselves, well, you know what might work? What if we just spread the rumor that he's not dead? I mean, that'll, that'll convince everybody. Well, now, first of all, that's, that's a, an arrogant view of, of history. Because it kind of puts us in the posture of, well, we're really smart people that wouldn't have fallen for that. But those dumb people way back then, they just fell for anything. All you had to do is say this guy was raised from the dead and, and steal the body away, and nobody will figure it out. So, so that's an arrogant view, first of all, in, in history. But, it, but also, it doesn't make any sense of the context. The disciples throughout the story, if, if they went back and, and made this all up, they don't come out looking terribly well in most of the story. They don't understand the story until after it happens. The only thing that could convince them was that they actually saw Jesus raised from the dead. Because it wasn't just a, a story that gained them power and influence. Actually, in most cases, it pushed them to the edges of society. It pushed them from city to city under persecution. And for most of these apostles, probably for all but John, it would cost them their lives. See, this, this isn't a made-up story. The only thing that would bring together this group of apostles is the truth of who Jesus is, the reality of what they saw. Because, because notice, even as their names are listed for us, now we've already met a few of them, but even as their names are listed for us, we can see that, that it's only Jesus who could hold a group like this together. Now we've met Simon and his, his brother Andrew, although Andrew's name gets dropped to fourth place on this list because James and John, who we've also met in the gospel, are moved to second and third place. Because throughout the gospel stories, it will be Peter and James and John who are that inner circle with Jesus. We've already met in verse 18, Matthew. In the gospel of Matthew, he's called Matthew the tax collector. Luke and Mark call him Levi the tax collector. And so how could you have a man named Matthew, a tax collector, along with, in verse 18 again, a man named Simon? Now, we have to make sure we don't confuse him with Simon, who we call Peter, and so we give him the designation here, Simon the Zealot. Now, it's possible that it just means he's really enthusiastic. Like, he's really excited to follow Jesus. But, but more, more likely, it means it's, it's, it's a political kind of designation, that Simon is a part of the Zealot movement. He is working to overthrow Rome when he comes across Jesus, this great teacher. And so, how could you have a Zealot 
Simon, and Matthew, a tax collector, working for Rome. How could you have these two men in this inner circle of 12 apostles? There's nothing that would hold them together. There is no way that that they would be able to keep together a a made-up lie, a fable, because they would, apart from Jesus, have despised each other. And so when we see the context and we see the the diversity from which Jesus calls these men, and, and most of them we know only by their names on this list. They're not mentioned again in in the gospel story. They're mentioned in the New Testament, but only in that category of the 12 or the apostles. But they are the ones who are with Jesus. They're the ones sent by Jesus. That's what an apostle is, a sent one, one who is sent with the message. And they are sent with Jesus' authority. So we see that that Jesus' strategic withdrawal doesn't slow down his ministry, his mission to the crowds. It it doesn't slow down his mission to the apostles. It actually strengthens that so that he can call them and designate them for this ministry. But I want you to notice with me Jesus' ongoing mission to us. And it's it's here in some of the details that Mark gives to us, the details about who Jesus is. Again, look at verse 11. And we hear on the lips of demons this designation of Jesus. When they are cast out, they cry out, Jesus, you are the Son of God. Now, earlier in Mark's gospel, we we heard a a demon cry out that he said, "I, I know who you are. You are the Holy One of Israel. You are sent by God. You are the Holy One. But now this designation, you are the Son of God, has even greater weight. Now, Jesus gives the demons strict orders not to tell who he is because it's, this is a clear claim of being the promised Messiah, God's own Son in the flesh. And this word has significance for us in Mark's gospel, this phrase, this designation of Jesus as the Son of God. And it's hinted for us, it's hinted at for us in the the story, the, the note that's given to us in verse 19, where we meet Judas Iscariot. Judas, now we, because it's a common name in the ancient world, we are given the description of where he's from, Judas Iscariot. But then Mark gives us this horrific detail. Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus. So you see the plot unfolding. The Pharisees and Herodians are plotting to kill Jesus, and now we know they have a man on the inside. One of the twelve will betray Jesus. Now that doesn't surprise us, because that's, unfortunately for Judas, what we associate him with. Every time you hear his name, Judas, the betrayer, Judas who turned on Jesus, Judas who sold Jesus out for silver. But Mark is pointing us to the reality of what this story, this unfolding historical drama means for us. Judas will betray Jesus. The religious leaders will crucify him because he claims to be the Son of God. Jesus is God in the flesh. 
Turn with me in the gospel as we, as we see this unfold. Turn with me to the very end of the gospel, to, to chapter 14. We find Jesus, after Judas has betrayed him, Jesus has been arrested. And in Jesus' trial before the religious leaders, the chief priests, the elders, the teachers of the law, the, they've finally worked together enough to, to, to arrest Jesus, to bring him to trial. And so in in Mark chapter 14, I'm going to start reading in verse 61. This is during the trial of Jesus. Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, this is Mark 14, 61. And so the, again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? They're asking Jesus what we already know to be true. We, the readers of the gospel, we know it's true that Jesus is the Son of God. We've heard the demons proclaim it. We've heard Jesus declare it. And so now, when the question is asked by the high priest, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of the Blessed One? Are you the Son of God? This is what Jesus says. I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. Do you see the designation back in chapter 3 that Jesus is the Son of God? This is what will lead Jesus to the cross. Because if it's not true, then it's blasphemy. But do you see what, what Mark is telling us? It is true. This death is a betrayal. This death is an injustice. And yet this death is the mission of Jesus for us. This is why Jesus came. To die on the cross in the place of sinners. To pay the penalty for our sin, for our rebellion. To call us into relationship with him. That we might hear the message proclaimed by the apostles that Jesus, the Son of God, died in our place and was raised from the dead. And that we might believe and follow. And so Mark's gospel continues. You might need to turn a page to get with me to chapter 15. We now go from the trial to the cross. Mark 15, verse 33. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, Listen, he's calling Elijah. One man ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. See, that is the declaration. Finally now, it's no longer demons who announce it. It is man who sees that, that this one who died died as the Son of God, with the power of God, the power to take away sins. And the, and the New Testament writers will declare this to be true. The, the Apostle Paul will begin the, the letter to the Romans by, by telling us that Jesus is 
the Son of God. The gospel is announced to us through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And regarding the Son, he's the descendant of, of David. And Jesus is through the Spirit of holiness declared with power to be the Son of God. But you see, when Mark tells us, when we hear the demons cry out, I know who you are. You are the Son of God. We are getting to the deepest truth of our lives. The truth that is meant for us, the readers, the listeners, to hear. Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Son of God in his ministry, in healing the sick and casting out demons and proclaiming the, the good news of the kingdom, the message that you need to repent. You need to turn from your sin and believe. Jesus is the Son of God in his death on the cross. Jesus is declared to be the Son of God by the eyewitness, the centurion. Surely, this man was the Son of God. And Jesus, in his resurrection from the dead, is declared by God, by the Spirit of holiness, to be the Son of God. And so when we see the, the tension in Mark's gospel... This tension between those that want to kill Jesus and those that are crowding around him to follow him, we see the truth. Those attempting to kill Jesus are bringing about a great injustice. And yet this is the very mission and purpose of Jesus, to die in the place of sinners. When we see the crowds pressing to Jesus, we understand that, that their expectations might not be, they might not fully understand who Jesus is, but they're, they're hearing it announced. Announced on the, the words of the demons. They're hearing it proclaimed now by the apostles, those that are sent with the message. And so what does it mean to follow Jesus? It means to accept this gospel message as it is given to us. Jesus is the one who calls. He is declared to be the Son of God. Will you trust in the Son of God, the one who sacrificed himself for you? And when you trust, will you go with the message? To be the church is to be sent. The apostles are those who are sent with the message. The apostles then give that task to the church. Take this gospel and go. Go with the gospel message. When General Nathaniel Green's troops were running to escape the British army, the larger force, he had left behind this small diversionary force. And their, their tactics of, of diverting the enemy actually worked for a few days. They chased this smaller force in the wrong direction. But then their scouts figured it out, and, and they began to chase again the main army, and they were closing in. Colonel Otho Williams was the, the American commander of this small force. And he thought all was lost, because now he can see the British behind him, and he now sees the campfires of the Americans in front of him. They are too far from the river. They will not make it. And so one of the American officers, this is what he wrote about this scenario. Seeing the enemy behind and the, the Americans too close to them to be able to escape. An American officer wrote, no pen can describe the heart-rendering feelings of our brave and wearied troops. 
These men had only been sleeping six hours every 48 in their efforts to save the larger American force. He says, our dauntless soldiers were convinced that the crisis had now arrived when its self-sacrifice could alone give a chance of escape of the main body. This small force made the decision to turn and fight the British. There was no hope of victory. They would sacrifice themselves just to gain a little time. This is what they said in their, their beautiful 18th century language. With one voice, it was announced the noble resolution to turn on the foe and by dint of desperate courage, so to cripple him as to force a discontinuance of pursuit. We will turn and give our lives so that there is chance of escape. Thankfully, when they caught up to where the campfires actually were, they realized they had just left a few men behind to keep the fires going for them. The main army was miles ahead and would make it to the Dan without their sacrifice. But Jesus, when he made his turn to the cross, he knew there was no other way, that self-sacrifice was absolutely necessary. And so Jesus, the Son of God, turned on the foe, not merely the foe of the, the, the religious leaders, the sinners, the, the, those that had rejected him. He turned on the foe of Satan himself, of death itself, and Jesus went to the cross, not as a diversionary tactic, but as a rescue mission. Do you see the rescue that we have in Jesus who would give his life for you? Jesus, who would put himself in my place on the cross. Jesus sacrificed himself for you. The Son of God died for you. And now the Son of God, Jesus Christ our Lord, raised from the dead, ascended into heaven, calls you to follow him. Will you go with this good news? The Son of God has died. The Son of God has been raised from the dead. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, your gospel challenges our hearts because it exposes our own sinfulness. It exposes our rebellion, our hatred of you. In choosing to go our own way, Lord, we have... We have rebelled against the authority, the dominion, the kingship of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, I thank you that while we were still sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. Lord, I pray that you would give us the faith to believe that we would hear the voice of Jesus calling to us, that it, through the words of Scripture we would hear the announcement of this truth, an announcement which comes with Jesus' own authority. It is the proclamation of the apostles. It is meant for us. And so, Lord, for those who, who wrestle with their sin, let them find forgiveness in Jesus. Let them turn from sin and trust in Christ. Let us trust in his death and in his resurrection. And, Lord, I pray that you would strengthen us to serve you, to follow after Jesus, to serve in his kingdom, 
to be willing to sacrifice ourselves, our lives, our wealth for the sake of your kingdom, that we would see the example of the apostles who have gone before us, the believers of ages past who have proclaimed this message at great cost to themselves and that we would follow Jesus, the Son of God. And so we come praying in his name. He is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.